0: Section one of John Sherman and Doya by William Butler Yeats. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section one. Part one. John Sherman leaves Bala. I. In the west of Ireland, on the ninth of December, in the town of Bala, in the Imperial Hotel, there was a single guest, clerical and youthful. With the exception of a stray commercial traveller, who stopped once for a night, there had been nobody for a whole month but this guest, and now he was thinking of going away. The town, full enough in summer of trout and salmon fishers, slept all winter like the bears. On the evening of the ninth of December, in the coffee-room of the Imperial Hotel, there was nobody but this guest. The guest was irritated. It had rained all day, and now that it was clearing up, night had almost fallen. He had packed his portmanteau—his stockings, his clothes-brush, his razor, his dress-shoes were each in their corner, and now he had nothing to do. He had tried the paper that was lying on the table—he did not agree with its politics. The waiter was playing an accordion in a little room over the stairs the guest's irritation increased, for the more he thought about it, the more he perceived that the accordion was badly played. There was a piano in the coffee-room. He sat down at it and played the tune correctly, as loudly as possible. The waiter took no notice. He did not know that he was being played for. He was wholly absorbed in his own playing, and besides, he was old, obstinate, and deaf the guest could stand it no longer. He rang for the waiter, and then, remembering that he did not need anything, went out before he came. He went through Martin Street and Peters Lane, and turned down by the burnt house at the corner of the fish-market, picking his way towards the bridge. The town was dripping, but the rain was almost over. The large drops fell seldomer and seldomer into the puddles, it was the hour of ducks three or four had squeezed themselves under a gate and were now splashing about in the gutter of the main street there was scarcely any one abroad once or twice a countryman went by in yellow gaiters covered with mud and looked at the guest once an old woman with a basket of clothes recognizing the protestant curate's locum tenens made a low curtsy the clouds gradually drifted away The twilight deepened, and the stars came out. The guest, having bought some cigarettes, had spread his waterproof on the parapet of the bridge, and was now leaning his elbows upon it, looking at the river, and feeling at last quite tranquil. His meditations, he repeated to himself, were plated with silver by the stars. The water slid noiselessly, and one or two of the larger stars made little roadways of fire into the darkness. The light from a distant casement made also its roadway. Once or twice a fish leaped. Along the banks were the vague shadows of houses seeming like phantoms gathering to drink. Yes, he felt now quite contented with the world, amidst his enjoyment of the shadows and the river, a veritable festival of silence, was mixed pleasantly the knowledge that, as he leant there with the light of a neighboring gas-jet, flickering faintly on his refined form and nervous face, and glancing from the little medal of some Anglican order that hung upon his watch-guard, he must have seemed, if there had been any to witness, a being of a different kind to the inhabitants at once rough and conventional of this half deserted town between these two feelings the unworldly and the worldly tossed a leaping wave of perfect enjoyment how pleasantly conscious of his own identity it made him when he thought how he and not those whose birthright it was felt most the beauty of these shadows and this river to him who had read much seen operas and plays known religious experiences and written verse to a waterfall in switzerland and not to those who dwelt upon its borders for their whole lives Did this river raise a tumult of images and wonders? What meaning it had for them he could not imagine. Some meaning surely it must have. As he gazed out into the darkness, spinning a web of thoughts from himself to the river, from the river to himself, he saw with a corner of his eye a spot of red light moving in the air at the other end of the bridge. He turned towards it, It came closer and closer, there appearing behind it, the while, a man and a cigar. The man carried in one hand a mass of fishing-line covered with hooks, and in the other a tin porringer full of bait. "'Good evening, Howard.' "'Good evening,' answered the guest, taking his elbows off the parapet and looking in a preoccupied way at the man with the hooks it was only gradually he remembered that he was in bala among the barbarians for his mind had strayed from the last evening gnats making circles on the water beneath to the devil's song against the little spirits in Mephistophele, looking down at the stone parapet he considered a moment and then burst out sherman how do you stand this place you who have thoughts above mere eating and sleeping, and are not always grinding at the stubble mill. Here everybody lives in the eighteenth century, the squalid century. Well, I am going to-morrow, you know. Thank heaven, I am done with your gray streets and gray mines. The curate must come home, sick or well. I have a religious essay to write, and besides, I should die." Think of that old fellow at the corner there, our most important parishioner. There are no more hairs on his head than thoughts in his skull. To merely look at him is to rob life of its dignity. Then there is nothing in the shops but school-books and Sunday-school prizes—excellent, no doubt, for any one who has not had to read as many as I have. Such a choir! Such rain! You need some occupation peculiar to the place, said the other, baiting his hooks with worms out of the little porringer. I catch eels. You should set some night-lines, too. You bait them with worms in this way, and put them among the weeds at the edge of the river. In the morning you find an eel or two, if you have good fortune, turning round and round and making the weeds sway. I shall catch a great many after this rain. What a! "'Suggestion! Do you mean to stay here,' said Howard, "'till your mind rots like your most important parishioners?' "'No, no. To be quite frank with you,' replied the other, "'I have some good looks, and shall try to turn them to account by going away from here pretty soon, and trying to persuade some girl with money to fall in love with me.' i shall not be altogether a bad match you see because after she has made me a little prosperous my uncle will die and make me much more so i wish to be able always to remain a lounger yes i shall marry money my mother has set her heart on it and i am not you see the kind of person who falls in love inconveniently for the present you are vegetating interrupted the other no i am seeing the world in your big towns a man finds his minority and knows nothing outside its border he knows only the people like himself but here one chats with the whole world in a day's walk for every man one meets is a class the knowledge i am picking up may be useful to me when i enter the great cities and their ignorance but i have lines to set come with me I would ask you home but you and my mother you know do not get on well i could not live with anyone i did not believe in said howard you are so different from me you can live with mere facts and that is why i suppose your schemes are so mercenary before this beautiful river these stars these great purple shadows do you not feel like an insect in a flower as for me i also have planned my future not too near or too far from a great city i see myself in a cottage with diamond panes sitting by the fire there are books everywhere and etchings on the wall on the table is a manuscript essay on some religious matter perhaps i shall marry some day probably not for i shall ask so much certainly i shall not marry for money for I hold the directness and sincerity of the nature to be its compass. If we once break it, the world grows trackless. Goodbye," bye said Sherman briskly. I have baited the last hook. Your schemes suit you, but a sluggish fellow like me, poor devil, who wishes to lounge through the world, would find them expensive. They parted sherman to set his lines and howard to his hotel in high spirits for it seemed to him he had been eloquent the billiard room which opened on the street was lighted up a few young men came round to play sometimes he went in for among these provincial youths he felt recherche besides he was a really good player as he came in one of the players missed and swore howard reproved him with a look he joined the play for a time and then catching sight through a distant door of the hotel-keeper's wife putting a kettle on the hob he hurried off and drawing a chair to the fire began one of those long gossips about everybody's affairs peculiar to the cloth as sherman having set his lines returned home he passed a tobacconist's a sweet shop and tobacconist's in one the only shop in town, except public-houses that remained open. The tobacconist was standing in his door, and, recognizing one who dealt consistently with a rival at the other end of the town, muttered, "'There goes that town and Jacka Dreams, Been fishing most likely. Ugh!' Sherman paused for a moment as he repassed the bridge, and looked at the water, on which now a new-risen and crescent moon was shining dimly. How full of memories it was to him! What playmates and boyish adventures did it not bring to mind! To him it seemed to say, Stay near me, as to Howard it had said, Go yonder to those other joys and other sceneries I have told you of. It bade him who loved stay still and dream, and gave flying feet to him who imagined. Two. The house where Sherman and his mother lived was one of those bare houses so common in country towns. Their dashed fronts, mounting above empty pavements, have a kind of dignity in their utilitarianism. They seem to say, Fashion has not made us, nor ever do its caprices pass our sand-cleaned doorsteps. On every basement window is the same dingy wire blind, on every door the same brass knocker. Custom everywhere. So much the longer, the blinds seem to say, have eyes glanced through us, and the knockers to murmur, and fingers lifted us. Number 15, Stevens Row, was in no manner peculiar among its twenty fellows. The chairs in the drawing-room facing the street were of heavy mahogany, with horsehair cushions worn at the corners. On the round table was somebody's commentary on the New Testament, laid like the spokes of a wheel on a table-cover of American oilcloth, with stamped Japanese figures half worn away. The room was seldom used, for Mrs. Sherman was solitary because silent. In this room the dressmaker sat twice a year, and here the rector's wife used every month or so to drink a cup of tea. It was quite clean. There was not a fly-mark on the mirror, and all summer the fern in the grate was constantly changed. Behind this room, and overlooking the garden, was the parlor, where cane-bottomed chairs took the place of mahogany. Sherman had lived here with his mother all his life, and their old servant hardly remembered having lived anywhere else, and soon she would absolutely cease to remember the world she knew before she saw the four walls of this house, for every day she forgot something fresh. The son was almost thirty, the mother fifty, and the servant near seventy. Every year they had two hundred pounds among them and once a year the son got a new suit of clothes, and went into the drawing-room to look at himself in the mirror. On the morning of the twentieth of December, Mrs. Sherman was down before her son. A spare, delicate-featured woman, with somewhat thin lips tightly closed as with silent people, and eyes at once gentle and distrustful, tempering the hardness of the lips. She helped the servant to set the table, and then, for her old-fashioned ideas would not allow her to rest, began to knit, often interrupting her knitting, to go into the kitchen or to listen at the foot of the stairs. At last, hearing a sound upstairs, she put the eggs down to boil, muttering the while, and began again to knit. When her son appeared, she received him with a smile. "'Late again, mother,' he said." The young should sleep, she answered, for to her he seemed still a boy. She had finished her breakfast some time before the young man, and because it would have appeared very wrong to her to leave the table, she sat on knitting behind the tea-urn, an industry the benefit of which was felt by many poor children, almost the only neighbors she had a good word for. "'Mother,' said the young man presently, "'Your friend, the locum tenens, is off to-morrow.' "'A good riddance!' "'Why are you so hard on him? "'He talked intelligently when here I thought,' answered her son. "'I do not like his theology,' she replied, "'nor his way of running about and flirting with this body and that body, "'nor his way of chattering while he buttons and unbuttons his gloves.' you forget he is a man of the great world and has about him a manner that must seem strange to us oh he might do very well she answered for one of those carton girls at the rectory that eldest girl is a good girl replied her son she looks down on us all and thinks herself intellectual she went on I remember when girls were content with their catechism and their Bibles, and a little practice at the piano, maybe, for an accomplishment. What does any one want more? It is all pride." "'You used to like her as a child,' said the young man. "'I like all children.'" Sherman, having finished his breakfast, took a book of travels in one hand and a trowel in the other, and went out into the garden having looked under the parlor window for the first tulip shoots he went down to the further end and began covering some sea-kale for forcing he had not been long at work when the servant brought him a letter there was a stone roller at one side of the grass-plot he sat down upon it and taking the letter between his finger and thumb began looking at it with an air that said well i know what you mean he remained long thus without opening it the book lying beside him on the roller. THE GARDEN, THE LETTER, THE BOOK. You have there the three symbols of his life. Every morning he worked in that garden among the sights and sounds of nature. Month by month he planted and hoed and dug there. In the middle he had set a hedge that divided the garden in two. Above the hedge were flowers, below it vegetables. At the farthest end from the house, lapping broken masonry full of wallflowers, the river said, month after month, to all upon its banks, Hush! He dined at two with perfect regularity, and in the afternoon went out to shoot or walk. At twilight he set night lines. Later on he read. He had not many books a Shakespeare, Mungo Park's Travels, a few two-shilling novels. Percy's relics, and a volume on etiquette. He seldom varied his occupations. He had no profession. The town talked of it. They said he lives upon his mother, and were very angry. They never let him see this, however, for it was generally understood he would be a dangerous fellow to rouse. But there was an uncle from whom Sherman had expectations who sometimes wrote remonstrating. Mrs. Sherman resented these letters, for she was afraid of her son going away to seek his fortune, perhaps even in America. Now this matter preyed somewhat on Sherman. For three years or so he had been trying to make his mind up and come to some decision. Sometimes when reading he would start and press his lips together and knit his brows for a moment. It will now be seen why the garden, the book, and the letter were the three symbols of his life, summing up as they did his love of -of out-of-door doings, his meditations, his anxieties. His life in the garden had granted serenity to his forehead, the reading of his few books had filled his eyes with reverie, and the feeling that he was not quite a good citizen had given a slight and occasional trembling to his lips he opened the letter. Its contents were what he had long expected. His uncle offered to take him into his office. He laid it spread out before him, a foot on each margin, right and left, and looked at it, turning the matter over and over in his mind. Would he go? Would he stay? He did not like the idea much. The lounger in him did not enjoy the thought of London. Gradually his mind wandered away into scheming—infinite scheming!—what he would do if he went! What he would do if he did not go! A beetle, attracted by the faint sunlight, had crawled out of his hole. It saw the paper and crept on to it, the better to catch the sunlight. Sherman saw the beetle, but his mind was not occupied with it. "'Shall I tell Mary Carton?' he was thinking. Mary had long been his adviser and friend. She was indeed everybody's adviser. Yes, he would ask her what to do. Then again he thought, no, he would decide for himself. The beetle began to move. If it goes off the paper by the top, I will ask her, if by the bottom, I will not. The beetle went off by the top. He got up with an air of decision and went into the tool-house, and began sorting seeds and picking out the light ones, sometimes stopping to watch a spider, for he knew he must wait till the afternoon to see Mary Carton. The tool-house was a favorite place with him. He often read there and watched the spiders in the corners. At dinner he was preoccupied. "'Mother,' he said, "'would you much mind if we went away from this?' I have often told you," she answered, I do not like one place better than another. I like them all equally little." After dinner he went again into the tool-house. This time he did not sort seeds, only watched the spiders. Three, Towards evening he went out. The pale sunshine of winter flickered on his path. The wind blew the straws about. He grew more and more melancholy. A dog of his acquaintance was chasing rabbits in a field. He had never been known to catch one, and since his youth had never seen one, for he was almost wholly blind. They were his form of the eternal chimera. The dog left the field and followed with a friendly sniff. They came together to the rectory. Mary Carton was not in. There was a children's practice in the schoolhouse. They went thither. A child of four or five, with a swelling on its face, was sitting under a wall opposite the school door, waiting to make faces at the Protestant children as they came out. Catching sight of the dog, she seemed to debate in her mind whether to throw a stone at it or call it to her. She threw the stone and made it run. In after times he remembered all these things as though they were of importance. He opened the latched green door and went in. About twenty children were singing in shrill voices, standing in a row at the further end. At the harmonium he recognized Mary Carton, who nodded to him and went on with her playing. The whitewashed walls were covered with glazed prints of animals. At the further end was a large map of Europe. By a fire at the near end was a table with the remains of tea. This tea was an idea of Mary's. They had tea and cake first. Afterwards, the singing. The floor was covered with crumbs. The fire was burning brightly. Sherman sat down beside it. A child with a great deal of oil in her hair was sitting on the end of a form at the other side. "'Look,' she whispered, "'I have been sent away. At any rate, they are further from the fire. They have to be near the harmonium. I would not sing. Do you like hymns? I don't.' will you have a cup of tea? I can make it quite well. See, I did not spill a drop. Have you enough milk?" It was a cup full of milk—children's tea. Look, there is a mouse carrying away a crumb. Hush!" They sat there, the child watching the mouse, Sherman pondering on his letter, until the music ceased and the children came tramping down the room. The mouse having fled, Sherman's self-appointed hostess got up with a sigh and went out with the others. Mary Carton closed the harmonium and came towards Sherman. Her face and all her movements showed a gentle decision of character. Her glance was serene, her features regular, her figure at the same time ample and beautifully moulded, her dress plain yet not without a certain air of distinction. In a different society she would have had many suitors, but she was of a type that in country towns does not get married at all. Its beauty is too lacking in pink and white, its nature in that small assertiveness admired for character by the uninstructed. Elsewhere she would have known her own beauty, as it is right that all the beautiful should, and have learnt how to display it. To add gesture to her calm and more of mirth and smiles to her grave cheerfulness. As it was, her manner was much older than herself. She sat down by Sherman with the air of an old friend. They had long been accustomed to consult together on every matter. They were such good friends, they had never fallen in love with each other. Perfect love and perfect friendship are indeed incompatible for the one is a battlefield where shadows war beside the combatants, and the other a placid country where consultation has her dwelling." These two were such good friends that the most gossiping townspeople had given them up with a sigh. The doctor's wife, a faded beauty and devoted romance reader, said one day as they passed, "'They are such cold creatures. The old maid who kept the Berlin wool-shop remarked, They are not of the marrying sort, and now their comings and goings were no longer noticed. Nothing had ever come to break in on their quiet companionship, and give obscurity as a dwelling-place for the needed illusions. Had one been weak and the other strong, one plain and the other handsome, one guide and the other guided, one wise and the other foolish, love might have found them out in a moment, for love is based on inequality as friendship is on equality. John, said Mary Carton, warming her hands at the fire, I have had a troublesome day. Did you come to help me teach the children to sing? It was good of you. You were just too late. No, he answered. I have come to be your pupil. I am always your pupil yes and a most disobedient one well advise me this time at any rate my uncle has written offering me a hundred pounds a year to begin with in his London office am I to go you know quite well my answer she said indeed I do not why should I go I am contented here I am now making my garden ready for spring. Later on there will be trout-fishing and saunters by the edge of the river in the evening when the bats are flickering about. In July there will be races. I enjoy the bustle, I enjoy life here. When anything annoys me I keep away from it, that is all. You know I am always busy. I have occupation and friends, and am quite contented. It is a great loss to many of us, but you must go, John," she said, for you know you will be old some day, and perhaps when the vitality of youth is gone you will feel that your life is empty and find that you are too old to change it, and you will give up, perhaps trying to be happy and likeable and become as the rest are. "'I think I can see you,' she said with a laugh a hypochondriac like gorman the retired excise officer or with a red nose like dr stevens or growing like peters the elderly cattle merchant who starves his horse they were bad material to begin with he answered and besides i cannot take my mother away with me at her age and i cannot leave her alone what annoyance it may be she answered will soon be forgotten you will be able to give her many more comforts. We women, we all like to be dressed well and have pleasant rooms to sit in, and a young man at your age should not be idle. You must go away from this little backward place. We shall miss you, but you are clever, and you must go and work with other men, and have your talents admitted. How emulous you would have me! Perhaps I shall be well-to-do some day." Meanwhile, I only wish to stay here with my friends." She went over to the window and looked out with her face turned from him. The evening light cast a long shadow behind her on the floor. After some moments she said, "'I see people ploughing on the slope of the hill. There are people working on a house to the right. Everywhere there are people busy.' And with a slight tremble in her voice she added, "'And John, Nowhere are there any doing what they wish. One has to think of so many things, of duty and God. Mary, I didn't know you were so religious. Coming towards him with a smile, she said, No more did I, perhaps, but sometimes the self in one is very strong. One has to think a great deal and reason with it. Yet I try hard to lose myself in things about me these children now, I often lie awake thinking about them. That child who was talking to you is often on my mind. I do not know what will happen to her. She makes me unhappy. I am afraid she is not a good child at all. I am afraid she is not taught well at home. I try hard to be gentle and patient with her. I am a little displeased with myself to-day, so I have lectured you. There." I have made my confession. But she added, taking one of his hands in both hers and reddening, you must go away, you must not be idle, you will gain everything. As she stood there with bright eyes, the light of evening upon her, Sherman, for perhaps the first time, saw how beautiful she was, and was flattered by her interest. For the first time also her presence did not make him at peace with the world. Will you be an obedient pupil? You know so much more than I do, he answered, and are so much wiser. I will write to my uncle and agree to his offer. Now you must go home, she said. You must not keep your mother waiting for her tea. There, I have raked the fire out. We must not forget to lock the door behind us. As they stood on the doorstep, the wind blew a whirl of dead leaves about them. "'They are my old thoughts,' he said. "'See, they are all withered.' They walked together silently. At the vicarage he left her and went homeward. The deserted flower-store at the corner of two roads, the house that had been burnt hollow ten years before, and still lifted its blackened beams— the straggling and leafless fruit-trees rising above garden-walls, the church where he was christened, these foster-mothers of his infancy seemed to nod and shake their heads over him. "'Mother,' he said hurriedly, entering the room, "'we are going to London.' "'As you wish. I always knew you would be a rolling stone,' she answered, and went out to tell the servant that as soon as she had finished the week's washing, they must pack up everything, for they were going to London. "'Yes, we must pack up,' said the old peasant. She did not stop peeling the onion in her hand. She had not comprehended. In the middle of the night she suddenly started up in bed, with a pale face and a prayer to the virgin, whose image hung over her bed. She had now comprehended. 4. On January the 5th, about two in the afternoon, Sherman sat on the deck of the steamer Lavinia, enjoying a period of sunshine between two showers. The steamer Lavinia was a cattle-boat. It had been his wish to travel by some more expensive route, but his mother, with her old-fashioned ideas of duty, would not hear of it and now, as he foresaw, was extremely uncomfortable below, while he, who was a good sailor, was pretty happy on deck, and would have been quite so if the pigs would only tire of their continual squealing. With the exception of a very dirty old woman sitting by a crate of geese, all the passengers but himself were below. This old woman made the journey monthly, with geese for the Liverpool market. Sherman was dreaming. He began to feel very desolate, and commenced a letter to Mary Carton in his notebook to state this fact. He was a laborious and unpractised writer, and found it helped him to make a pencil copy. Sometimes he stopped and watched the puffins sleeping on the waves. Each one of them had its head tucked in in a somewhat different way—that is, because their characters are different, he thought. Gradually he began to notice a great many corks floating by, one after the other. The old woman saw them too, and said, waking out of a half sleep, Mr. John Sherman, we will be in the Mersey before evening. Why are you going among them savages in London, Mr. John? Why don't you stay among your own people? For what have we in this life but a mouthful of air? End of section one.